Mr. Durst, do you understand that you don't make the rules here? If I made the rules, I wouldn't be here. Clearly. You realized when you heard it, Mr. Durst, that if Kathy's earrings were found back at the apartment, that could be damaging to you, correct? No. Are you saying that the incident did not happen at all? Is that your testimony? I had no idea that she was not in her study. Who was Prudence Farrow? She was a woman I had an affair with. When I think about Kathy, I miss Kathy. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Thursday, August 19th, Deputy District Attorney John Lewin continued his riveting cross-examination of Robert Durst. Thursday marked Durst's seventh day on the stand and Lewin's third day of cross. Today, you'll notice our episode is structured a little differently. Instead of presenting clips from Thursday's testimony followed by our conversation with New York Times reporter Charlie Bagley, we're going to play our conversation and cut to relevant sections of testimony. In that discussion, we'll examine Robert Durst's evasive tactics in his showdown with the prosecution and explore Durst's testimony regarding his affair with Prudence Farrow, his domestic abuse of his wife Kathy, and a pair of earrings Kathy mysteriously left behind when she disappeared. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Joining us now is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Hey, thank you. So again, Charlie, let me ask you the question I start every one of our sessions with. What did you make of what happened in the courtroom today, particularly John Lewin's third day of interrogating Robert Durst on the witness stand? It was another day where we were going through a very meticulous and exhaustive cross-examination, point by point. And it was not so much the individual responses to each one, where basically the prosecutor is challenging every single thing that Bob has said about the disappearance of his wife, his whereabouts, his actions, the state of their marriage, the, the violence or nonviolence in, in their marriage. But what I was focused on was a little bit more when the prosecutors finally says to Bob, after going through so many of these statements that he said were lies, he asks Bob, how are we supposed to figure out when you're lying or telling the truth? You've just given two statements to Andrew Jarecki, one on December 12th, which says you had a pushing, shoving argument. Then the next day you say, we didn't have a fight. We didn't wrestle. We didn't touch one another. And when Jarecki tells you, wait, but in our last conversation, didn't you say there was a physical altercation? 
and you said, no, I don't think I had a physical altercation that night. You're sure I told you that? You've just heard the two statements. Do you agree those two statements, both from you, one day apart, to Andrew Jarecki, are completely inconsistent with each other? I told Andrew what I felt like telling Andrew. Well, but I thought you told me that Andrew told you the first day to say that there was some kind of fight, and then you say that, and then the second day you were saying Andrew decides to tell you to say the opposite and then to try to correct you? Is that your statement? By the time the interview had gotten to the third day, I was beginning to think that maybe I had made a mistake and I was not going along with all of Andrew's directions. So, Mr. Durst, when you said, I don't think I told you yesterday that we had a pushing, shoving argument, when you said that on the third day, you knew that was a lie. Correct? Because you knew you had said that to him the day before. Is that right? I lied to Andrew repeatedly. Which, so which version, were you lying on the 12th or the 13th or both? Oh. How are we supposed to figure out when you're lying and when you're telling the truth? I don't know. If you think of it, let me know. Interrupt me. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. And over the course of the day, I thought there were a couple of moments where if Bob is going to cave, if his defenses are going to collapse, we're coming close to that moment. But then he would turn it around and he would get surly and he would get sarcastic and he would come back at Lewin with the answer to the question that he wanted to answer and pointing out the facts that he wanted to point out, whether they were relevant to the answer to the question or not. Do you know of a reason why Fadwin Najami would have a motivation to make up the statement that there were no drugs at the house? Maybe she did not want to talk about doing drugs. Were you aware that Fadwin Najami testified that she had had drug issues in the past and was a drug counselor? Do you remember that testimony? I am aware that Gilbert and Najami did two prison terms for selling cocaine to middle school students. What her sister talks about but I don't think change the motion to strike, Your Honor, is non-responsive. Mr. you agree that what you just did was rather than answer my question about Fadwin Ajami, you literally decided you were going to try to say things about Gilberta Najami, which you knew you were not allowed to say, correct? I do and did not know. I was not supposed to announce that Gilbert and Johnny did two prison terms for selling cocaine to middle school students. And when you just repeated it a second time, that was an accident as well? That was not an accident. You're just going to do whatever you want up there, no matter what the rules are, aren't you? No. Sustained, stricken. Mr. Durst? Do you understand 
that you don't make the rules here. You understand that, right? If I made the rules, I wouldn't be here. Clearly. And I think that by the end of the day, that was the Robert Durst that we were left with, was someone who was defiant, who was bemused by the fact that he was frustrating Lewin, and by the fact that he was going to be the star of this show and wasn't going to lose what he perceives to be a very competitive match. I think that's accurate. Bob thinks that he can outsmart everyone else in the room. And let me be clear. I don't think Durst is fooling anyone on the jury. And I don't think he's actually frustrating Lewin. But I do think he may think he's doing those things. And in any event, he is simply enjoying being the star of the shit show. Brittany, what were some of the things that struck you about the day? Overall, it seemed like there was a real change today in the dynamic between Lewin and and Durst. It was so odd to me, the exchange about Ann Anderson Doyle. Lewin kind of caught Bob in an inconsistency. At one point, he said that Kathy told him that she told Ann this anecdote. He also said that he made it up for Andrew Jarecki. All right, let's talk about the terrorist incident. When I say the name Kevin uh, and Ann Anderson Doyle, you know who they are, correct? Correct. They were living in the neighboring penthouse at 37 Riverside Drive. You testified about this incident on August 11, 2021, correct? I don't remember the date, but I accept that. During your testimony, you testified that no actual fight took place, correct? Correct. You also testified that the incident had actually become what you called, quote, a standing joke, correct? Standing joke? That's my language. Let's play it. What happened after Mr. Doyle came to the door and told you that Kathy was over there and said she was afraid of you? (laughs) I went back to bed. Did Kathy come home? Yes. Was that the end of it? This became a standing joke. Someone, I don't believe a lawyer, probably Gilberta, had convinced Kathy that if Kathy could show that I was physically abusing her, she would get a bigger settlement if we ever got divorced. Do you recall that now, Mr. Durst? I do. If that was simply an effort to falsely accuse you of domestic violence to get a bigger settlement, wouldn't your wife have called the police to report it? Well, she did not call the police. Mr. Durst, did you hear Ann Anderson's Doyle's testimony? Did you hear it? I heard it. Would you agree that her version description of what happened was a horrifying episode of domestic violence? Would you agree with that characterization? No. She described your wife as being terrified and hysterical. I believe she, at one point, compared her to um, a frightened dog. Do you recall that? No. Are you saying that the incident did not happen at all? Is that your testimony? I had no idea that she was not in her study. And there was no fight or argument that led up to it. There was no fight and there was no argument. RD-405, 
2010. When we were talking about the um, the terrace incident or her climbing out onto the terrace during the uh, go on. Um, you know, you said that that they came over and uh, they said, "Well, she's afraid to come home," or the neighbor. Yeah, she's came afraid over. to come home. And your reaction to that was to say, "Well, she doesn't want to come home. She doesn't have to she doesn't come have home. Have to come home. She's got the other apartment over on 86th Street. She wants me to get out of here so she can get some stuff together. Whatever she wants to do, she can do. I don't care." And. When you said you didn't care, what did that mean? I, you didn't and care? It's late or? at night, I'm tired, you know, I want to go to sleep. She can do whatever she wants to do. Was that a big fight compared to other no, incidents between you? No, it was a mini, mini, mini fight. The fact that she climbed out the window made it a big fight, but that wasn't a big thing that didn't go on long all of a sudden she's climbing out the window. I was already, you know, getting ready to go to bed. I don't remember her climbing out the window. Do you agree that's what you said in the 2010 interview? That's what I said. I want to just be clear on this. Is this another example of something Andrew Jarecki told you to say? He encouraged me to say something having to do with the neighbors. What, what does that mean? Just mention them or... Did he give you the story? Please expand on that. What did he tell you to say? I had told him about Kathy going to the neighbors and telling the neighbors that I was beating her up. He told me to put in my own words what happened. And I created the thing about her climbing out the window. Mr. Durst, at the time you were talking to Andrew Jarecki, you didn't know what Ann Anderson Doyle had said about this incident, correct? No, not correct. Well, how was it that you knew, Mr. Durst? It hadn't aired yet. Kathy told me. So Kathy told you that she had told Ann Anderson Doyle that she had climbed out the window? Correct. But I just thought you just testified that you made up the climbing out the window. Which is it? Kathy told you about it or you made it up? Kathy told me about it and I told Jarecki. You just told us one minute ago, Mr. Durst, that you made up the story of Kathy going out the window. Are you denying that you didn't just say that one minute ago? I made up the story about Kathy climbing out the window after Kathy had told me that Kathy had made up the story and told the Doyles. Isn't it true that what you are doing is you are sitting there listening to my questions and as soon as I ask a question you're trying to figure out how your story needs to evolve to fit within the facts you've already lied about. Isn't that what you're doing? No. But it was just such an odd moment because there's a lot of information and a lot of evidence that he was an abusive husband and he is not owning up to that. And in a lot of other cases, it kind of seems like he's trying to not get out in front of, but cop to the lies that he has to cop to. But that was just one where I thought, you know, that can't leave a good impression on the jury.
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then, of course, at the end of the day, like what you're describing with Kathy's relationship with Dean Cook and making somebody read the entire stipulation that 10 doctors would have testified to this set of facts. And Bob kind of ignores all of the content about that and just says, well, they didn't know about her relationship with Dean Cook. And, you know, Lewin came back with, so how was that supposed to work? So your position is, Mr. Durst, that apparently after Kathy Durst called Dr. Cooperman, Dr. Cooperman was then as an associate dean supposed to call the service Kathy was supposed to be working on and say, hey, listen, uh, this is Dean Cooperman. Kathy can't make it today. Is that your testimony? You've changed my testimony. How? My testimony is what I said. It's right there in black and white in the stipulation. None of the doctors knew anything about the relationship between Kathy Durst and Dr. Cook. Forgetting about the relationship between Dr. Cooper and Kathy Durst, how is it that the rotation, the service, was supposed to find out that Kathy Durst was not going to be there? Whatever the relationship was between Kathy Durst and Dr. Cook, that was what they wanted her to do. So, Mr. Durst, then the inference from that is that Dr. Cook or Dr. Cooperman was supposed to contact the rotation and tell them Kathy was sick. You agree that is the inference you are suggesting? I don't agree with anything you are saying. Whatever the relationship between Kathy Durst and Dr. Cook had, that was what Kathy Durst was supposed to do. I wonder if Lewin's strategy here is just to wear Bob down. Maybe it was fun at first. He's in the spotlight. This is his big show. And I wonder if the uh, stage lights are getting a little too hot for him. I think that going in, that may well have been the strategy. But I also think that in a weird way, as Bob gets more used to being on the witness stand, he starts to take more liberties with how he answers questions and what he says, and ultimately ignores it when the judge admonishes him. And I think what he's learning is that if he doesn't really care what the jury thinks, I mean, maybe he's going for one juror, but what he cares about is winning the kind of entertainment contest in his own mind between him and Lewin. You know, it's a game of amusement for him. And if he feels like he is ridiculing Lewin more than Lewin is humiliating him, then 
he feels like he's winning. And I, I think Lewin was definitely on to something when he focused in on the pleasure that Bob took in humiliating Kathy or humiliating her family. And Bob not owning that in any way, except he would say, yeah, I acted like an asshole. But but I think that he, what he's trying to do here is humiliate Lewin. And I think he feels like he's scoring points. I think that ultimately, Lewin and Bob are playing for different audiences. Bob is playing for himself, and Lewin is playing for the jury. And I think that that's ultimately, I'm afraid, going to end in frustration for all of us who want that Jack Nicholson moment from A Few Good Men, where he kind of falls apart under pressure and acknowledges that he killed his wife and shot Susan Berman in the back of the head and shot Morris Black in the back of the head. I think you're right in that we all would like to have that moment of clarity where where the muddy waters become clear and we can see the bottom and and see what the truth is but often enough that happens maybe only on tv i think that our last best hope for something unexpected to come out of this interrogation is when we get back to Susan's house on Benedict Canyon and Lewin points out all of the lies that Bob told about what was in that house, what he did in that house. I'm sure that Lewin's going to call him on a lot of it. I think you make a very good point. But here's the other aspect of it is it's not just going after the lies. I, I think there's an emotional component And he's got to go after the idea that he considered Susan his his best friend for most of his life. This woman that he held above all others, except in his own words, for maybe two years when when he thought Kathy was great. But Susan was, you know, they he had this bond with her. And I think that he's got to remind Bob of just how much she cherished him and how much he cherished her. And, and yet she came to this tragic ending. In the first day, or, or maybe it was in the morning of the second day of, of the cross-examination, I think Lewin was asking him about Kathy and their marriage and, and Bob got a little bit emotional. All right, I want to talk about Kathy for a moment. Do you miss her? Yes. Tell me about her. When I think about Kathy, I miss Kathy. What was she like? She was very lively. And up until the last year of her, of our marriage, she was very happy. Would you agree she was a very bright young woman? Yes. Beautiful? Yes. Would you agree that she was close to and devoted to her family? She was close to Mary Hughes, the other two sisters, and her brother she was not so close to. She was very close to her mom, though, as well, right? Sure. And would you agree that she was really excited about becoming a doctor? 
Would you further agree that given the humble beginnings that she had come from, she was really accomplishing things in her life? Would you also agree that the Kathy Durst you know would never have simply taken off this close to graduating medical school? I would agree with that. Would you also agree that Kathy Durst never would have abandoned her family and friends to never talk to them again? Yes. And if I asked you on a scale of one to a hundred with one being, you know what? Yeah, I can absolutely see Kathy abandoning her family in medical school, never to be heard from again. And a hundred being, that is an impossibility. What number would you give it? I would give it a hundred. You know, you could almost detect some remorse. You know, it looked like if there was going to be a breakthrough moment, it might come then, but it didn't. Interesting. I remember that moment, Charlie, and I found myself thinking, is this fabricated? Is this where Bob is connecting with seeing his dead friend and thinking that if he's emotional here, he can connect with the jury? And I, I think he's demonstrated that he's enough of a sociopath to do just that. Another point of the day that I found interesting was Lewin's questions to Durst about Prudence Farrow. Charlie, would you remind our listeners of who Prudence Farrow is? Sure. Prudence Farrow is not only the sister of actress Mia Farrow, but she is also the inspiration for the Beatles song, Dear Prudence. The whole idea was Prudence was taking this whole meditation thing really seriously. And the Beatles are saying, hey, won't you come out and play? They were all in India together visiting the Maharishi. Anyway, in the very, very early 80s, Bob became infatuated with her. Apparently, they met while they were each walking their dogs. And Bob really took a shine to her. And... She, at the moment, was, according to Bob, living with her mother. So Bob decided to put her into a Durst building on West 44th Street, just off of 8th Avenue. And he was just totally infatuated with Prudence. And Prudence apparently had something, you know, she took a shine to Bob, even though she was married, and they were together, or at least hanging out together for quite a while. And Prudence even called Kathy. Kathy told her sister, Mary Hughes, and others that she was really bothered by Prudence Farrow. In any event, as I understand it, Prudence Farrow broke off with Bob before Kathy disappeared. And she was, Prudence Farrow was interviewed by the prosecutor, but Uh, The interview has not been put into evidence, so we don't know exactly what she told him. And she has resisted my many efforts to interview her. But she is an intriguing figure in this story, as well as something of a uh, historical footnote. Thanks, Charlie. 
Now, it seems to me that Lewin is really zeroing in on that relationship, not necessarily to imply that Durst's murder of Kathy was premeditated so that he could be with Prudence Farrow, but more to present Farrow as a subject that may have come up on the night of Kathy's disappearance. Something that Kathy may have said about Prudence that may have triggered Robert to become violent toward her. Who is Prudence Farrow? She was a woman I had an affair with. And when did you have an affair with her? It started before Kathy disappeared and lasted for a few months after Kathy disappeared. Mr. Durst, it started well before Kathy disappeared, correct? No, not correct. When did it start? It was after we moved to 37 Riverside Drive. So the earliest it could have been would have been October of 81. I don't think it started until closer to Thanksgiving. Mr. Durst, you would agree that she was different than other women you had had affairs with during your marriage, correct? She was Prudence Farrow, and the two other women who I had affairs with were different. What I'm asking, Mr. Durst, is that you felt much strongly about, uh, more strongly about Prudence Farrow than you did about the other women that you had cheated with, correct? That's what I told you, Reggie. That was not true. Well, you didn't just tell Jarecki that, correct? You told me and detectives that during the March 15, 2015 interview, correct? During the March 15, 2015 interview, I was attempting to do a plea bargain with you. Okay. You were in love with Prudence, correct? No. I'm just going to read this one. Question. And at that point in time, too, is it fair to say that you had fallen in love with Prudence? Answer, yes. Who am I talking to? You're talking to myself and two detectives on March 15, 2015. So I don't know why I said that. Can you explain why you possibly would have answered the question that way, that you were in love with her if you weren't? That's what I felt like saying. You stated during the 3-15-15 interview that Prudence told you right before Kathy disappeared that she would not continue the relationship with you because you were married, correct? I don't recall saying that. Do you recall 315 15, page 57, line 25. This is myself asking the question. Prudence has said that very near the time of Kathy's death that um, she had told you that um, because you were married that you know that was a problem for her. Do you remember that? You responded, yeah, we had that discussion. Does that refresh your memory? I might have said that. Prudence was married. So there was never a question of us getting married. So how did, uh, did Kathy know about Prudence? Yes. And did Kathy know that Prudence was someone that you cared about? Kathy knew that I was seeing Prudence. By seeing Prudence, meaning you were sleeping with her, correct? Correct. And what did Kathy say to you about that? She did not like it. In fact, didn't you have, at one point, Mr. Durst, didn't you arrange for Prudence to speak with Kathy 
to try and influence Kathy to divorce you? No. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that you wanted to pursue a relationship with Prudence, but that Kathy Durst, your wife, was in the way? No. So before Kathy disappeared, did you want to pursue a relationship with Prudence? Yes. When would that have been? December 1981. And was Kathy okay with you pursuing a relationship with Prudence? No. And was Prudence okay with you pursuing a relationship with her if you were still with Kathy? Prudence didn't care. Prudence was married. So, Mr. Prudence wanted to go back with her husband, the father of her children. So I'm not asking what Prudence wanted in terms of you wanted to pursue a relationship with Prudence by your own statement. Kathy did not want you to pursue a relationship with Prudence. And I'm asking you, how did that get resolved? Kathy disappeared. Yes, that is how it got resolved, isn't it? I imagine we'll be hearing a lot more about that relationship in the coming week. What do you make of towards the end of today when uh, the prosecutor was questioning Bob about uh, Kathy's diamond earrings and how they were found back at the Riverside Drive apartment? You realized when you heard it, Mr. Durst, correct, that if Kathy's earrings were found back at the apartment, that could be damaging to you, correct? No, the fact that they found Kathy's, I'm not sure which earrings we're talking about now. With Mary, Mary Hughes and Geraldine McInerney, at my suggestion, looked over Kathy's stuff to see if they'll make any hint as to what had happened to Kathy. They found her jewelry box. In the jewelry box, there were some diamond earrings. All that tells me is that Kathy Durst got back to the Riverside Drive apartment Sunday night, January 31st, after taking the train from Katona. Mr. Durst, is there another reasonable inference that somebody could make from the fact that those earrings were back in your apartment. Maybe it could be inferred that Bob has a bad memory and didn't pay careful attention to what jewelry his wife was wearing. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that the third inference certainly could be that you yourself put the earrings back on Riverside Drive? trying to figure out how exactly that would work. I guess it's possible I could have said, Kathy, give me your earrings so I can put them in your jewelry box. I'm going to throw one out there. How about this? How about you murder her and then offer dead body, you take her earrings and you put them back? I'm, before I know you're saying that didn't happen, but I want to ask you, is that a reasonable inference that could be drawn from the evidence? Thinking. Overruled. Mr. Durst, did you kill your wife, Kathy, and then take the earrings off of her body and put them back in Riverside Drive so you have them? Thinking about that makes my skin crawl. The answer is no. I did not kill my wife, 
And I did not take her earrings off of her ears. I just want to understand, thinking about removing earrings from your wife makes your skin crawl. How about dismemberment? Does that make your skin crawl? Absolutely. You didn't dismember Kathy, did you? No. You dismembered Morris Black, your friend, correct? Correct. But that, you can imagine, in fact, you did do, but the idea of dismembering Kathy, that's the line? Is that a fair assessment? I don't think your question is proper. I did not kill Kathy, and I did not dismember her. Thinking about dismembering her makes my skin crawl. It, it was like one of the rare instances where he expressed some revulsion to the violence that we've heard about, whether it was cutting up bodies or anything else. And Lewin's comeback at that point was, well, well gosh darn it, did, did it make your skin crawl to cut up Morris Black's body with a bow saw? Yep. And Bob didn't really have much to say to that. Yeah, he said, yeah, I cut up Morris Black's body. I've admitted that. That was it. And again, it kind of goes back to this idea that Lewin's playing for the jury and Bob's playing to score points in his own mind, in his own game of amusement. Which is pretty much how he's lived his entire life. He didn't have a lot of friends, but he was always in these larger social situations, whether it was high school or in business. He held himself apart and above for everyone. Yeah, Charlie, I think that's exactly it. And and when we think about, you know, any kind of big moment where all of a sudden he admits to doing any of these things, while that might feel satisfying in sort of like a cinematic way, if he did that, he wouldn't really be Bob Durst. Yeah, true that. <laughs> Well, that's a good place to leave our conversation for today. Join us on the next episode where we continue to deconstruct the questioning of Robert Durst by Deputy District Attorney John Lewin on our podcast, Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Notabartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Notabartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. 
Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.